Hello, hello, you magnificent people. It's that time again. I'm Zach, your host of the Auxoro podcast, The Voice of Music, where we dive deep and deconstruct the stories of music artists, industry pros, and others to answer the question, what makes us human? This week's episode is brought to you by The Ox. Now, what the hell is The Ox? Valid question. The Ox is a compact weekly newsletter bringing you the five coolest things that we come across each week. These little nuggets of coolness, nuggets of knowledge, whatever you want to call them, can range anything from art and life hacks to recipes and workout tips. That's right. I'm calling you fat. So get off your ass and discover some information or tools that can enhance your lifestyle. Now, how can you do this? You may be wondering. We'll make a trade. You give us your email, phone number, social security, the name of your first cat, your mother's middle maiden name, the last six digits of your neighbor's Dave and Buster's card, and we'll send you a quick email with the five coolest things we find each week. Don't actually send us all of that. That was a joke. We just need your email, and I don't trust our staff with that information. Anyway, this newsletter is no spam, no bullshit, just cool. At least our version of cool. And nothing is better than cool shit, especially cool shit that's free, which this newsletter will always be. If you're ready to take your cool to the next level, you can subscribe to the newsletter with the link in the description of this podcast or visit auxoro.com slash the aux. That's A-U-X. Now on to the conversation you all came here for. This week, we sat down with the Seattle-based rapper Soul who has been to so many places besides Seattle, Washington. He's also been to Spokane. Just kidding, he's been to a lot of places. During his time at the University of Washington, shout out Huskies, he was awarded the Bonderman Scholarship, which allowed Seoul to travel to 10 different countries in 10 months. One of the requirements of this trip was that he had to go alone. At the time, Soul sat at the number one spot on the iTunes hip-hop charts and number four globally after the release of Yours Truly back in 2012. And then he decided to drop off the map. When most will look to do anything to capitalize financially and socially on an album's success, Soul saw it more important to find himself on this trip. In this episode, Soul talks about the impact of this 10-month journey, how he actually started as a painter before music, his relationship with Macklemore, a pivotal conversation with his aunt, and the creative process behind his most recent album that just dropped on March 1st, soon enough. Even if you aren't an avid listener to Soul, which you should be, or music in general, I highly recommend you listen through this conversation. This talk was more than music. Soul dropped some unique insight on crafting the vision of an independent artist, understanding different cultures, and why your definition of success should not be defined by the mainstream. Without further ado, here's our wide-ranging conversation with Soul. When you think about me, don't worry, I'm good. Either way, I'll be good. 
Either way, I'll be good if you don't call. Either way, I'll be good. Either way, I'll be good. When we kicked it every day, we were something like. I figure a good place to start would be your childhood. And to kind of get into what it was like to be Soul, the kid. And I know it's really hard to give a synopsis of, you know, a decade of your life. But if there was some period, some early formative memory stage, maybe around five to six years old, maybe a little later than that, what was it like in your household growing up when you were first starting to form memories? What was it like living with your parents, going to school, maybe early formative music memories where you look back and say, wow, like that really left an impact on me. Maybe you didn't know it at the time. And it doesn't, it doesn't have to be memories from music. It could be just personal growth memories that you look back and say, wow, that really left an impact on me. I can really see how that affected me since time passed. Man, the first thing that came to mind was the grade school that I went to. I went to an alternative school in Seattle called AE2 Decatur. Shout out Decatur. Yeah, it was it was a super influential environment that set me up to have the confidence to create. I think in people's childhood oftentimes at some point they're discouraged to express themselves creatively whether it's one of their peers making fun of them or making fun of their art or an adult telling them that their dreams are not realistic. For me, I went to school in an environment that really, really cherished and encouraged students' creativity. My mom also was a teacher there. So I ended up spending, oh, wow, I don't know, 12 plus hours a day just in the academic, just in this kind of creative school environment, because I was, I would show up an hour before all the other kids. And then my mom would have to do work after, you know, after the kids went away, I stayed at the school, hanging around in the after school program, which was also art based and, and doing things in the music program and really just building a lot of social skills and a lot of creative skills. And it led me to actually drawing and painting first. So a lot of my memories are just seated, seated, excuse me, somewhere with the pencil and paper. I've spent my weekends drawing. I drew in, in class even when I wasn't supposed to. And that was art for me for the first 10 years of my life. Even as a super young kid, even before I could really like express myself vocally, fully, I was already drawing. Like My parents said I was drawing way earlier than most kids. And then around 10 years old, I switched over to music. But yeah, to, to answer your question, my school and the, my parents' choice to have me at that school and to really encourage my, my artistic expression, I think, laid the foundation for who I am. Yeah, it seems like just from what you're saying, the school really encouraged the creative outlets, especially from a young age. And I know just from reading things or maybe listening to podcasts or other interviews that schools today are, are so focused on the technical aspects or maybe more focused on things like math and science, especially from an earlier age. And not that that's a bad thing, but I think when you 
you start to implement that early on and parents are more and more worried as things get more competitive that their kids need to acquire these skills earlier and earlier, that it's nice to have been in an environment where it sounds like it was very free-flowing, encouraging creative passions and pursuits alongside some of those other more technical subjects, which is cool. Oh, yeah. I mean, this school was super alternative. I, I didn't even get grades until I was in middle school. You know, we called our teachers by, by their first names and every year. You called your teachers by your first names? Oh, yeah. Wow. I, I can't imagine that. <laughs> it was crazy. Uh, like, what's up? What's up, Steve? Yeah, How's exactly. How's it going? <laughs> like Steve was my third and fourth grade teacher. <laughs> no way. <laughs> yeah. Shout out know? Steve too. For sure, man. Steve Chavez. And, you know, it, it, each year. So, for example, in Steve's class, my third grade year, our class has or, or had a group project, basically. And they called them, what did they call them? Basically, it was an exploration project. And each class would get to choose. It was like a group decision what we were going to focus on that year. So, of course, you know, you would do math at a certain time of the day. You would do reading. And we had our personal projects, but you would you would take on a group project where we would all be exploring something. So in Steve's class, we explored film photos and shooting film and developing film as a third as a third grader. And I actually I, I didn't make this connection until just now, but shooting film has been one of my biggest passions outside of music in my adult life. I didn't shoot film for probably a, a decade plus, but it came back around and it probably started back then. And then we would use that, that experience shooting photos. Our class then designed and curated the school yearbook for that year. So, you know, it, it was the type of thing where, you know, okay, w- we get to do something creative and we get to apply it in a very tangible way. And yeah, uh, I think schools don't have enough of that. And yeah, and, and it's also just like a certain side of the brain that you develop when you get to work on things creatively. And, and, and you could do that with, you know, word math problems or, you know, different types of writing, of course, but finding a way to find a route to a finished product where you have to kind of lay your own path. There isn't just one way to do it. I think it's an important skill. It's a different side of your brain and it's at a stage at that age where you don't have the responsibilities yet of adult life. Because when once you get to high school and college, it's impossible to think about creative pursuits without the thought entering your mind of how can I make a living off this or how can I make money off this? How can I hustle? Which is, if you are passionate enough to the point where you want to make that your life, that that's absolutely a healthy thing to think about. But at the age when you're in elementary school, middle school, it's such a, a pure creative drive where you're just doing things because it's interesting or curious or you saw someone else doing something and you're like, what's that? I I want to do that. So it's like you have this this pure interest without any of the other financial or social incentives. And to be honest, as as an adult, we have to be creative in order to find a way to make money off of these things. You know, like it's not just the fact that you, you know, run a music website and have a podcast that happens to be creative, but in order to monetize, you know, you, you could be monetizing some sort of product that someone else designed and you were just, you were just an entrepreneur 
trying to have a startup, you still have to be creative in order to find a way to finesse that into something viable. Or, or even if you work, I don't know, at, at a nine to five and you're trying, you're just scraping by and you're trying to find some sort of way to get ahead, you're going to have to get creative with your money as far as like, okay, how am I going to maybe flip some of this money or like make, make some investments? That's all creative, all of that. The, the system is set up a certain way. So in order for us to navigate and to try to break the patterns, we have to think creatively. I, I think that all revolutions, social and otherwise, require creativity. And that's within yourself and also on a larger scale. That, that actually, before, I wanted to ask you some questions about painting too, before you got into music, but it, it brought up the moment from the Grammys where Drake was making a speech that he supposedly got cut off. And I, I know it sounds corny to bring up Drake, but when he was articulating his point where he said that you don't need this award if you are getting people to show up to your concerts, basically exchanging time and exchanging money for something that you create, which is what so part of what you were referring to where you have to get creative for people to make that exchange. You have to finesse these ideas and try to come up with a way to live off those things. That's a creation in itself. And what he said was so true that if you are, no matter what level you're at, if five or 10 people paid for a concert ticket or 50,000 or anywhere in between, that's such an accomplishment. And my eyes and so many other people's eyes, even if you aren't the considered the top of the top, if you're getting you know 500 people to show up at a concert one night, that's insane. Like 500 people said, I'm going to spend three hours come chill with this dude and I'm going to pay 20, 30 bucks to do it. That's incredible. So you said you started painting when you were younger and then around 10, you switched or maybe not switched all at once, but then music entered your mind at 10 years old. And that's when you started being in the studio or being around the studio and other artists making music, at least. What was it like in that transition period where your parents maybe thought you were, you were going to become an artist. Your teachers saw that artistic spark in you. And all of a sudden you started having this interest in music and recording music. How did that transition happen? To be honest, it, it kind of was like a light switch. It really did. It was almost like music replaced drawing and painting for me. I wish that wasn't entirely the case, but at the end of the day, I just wanted to express myself. And um, when I found a new, exciting way to express myself, I kind of just dove in for that and stopped drawing as, as often and just ended up just writing raps and raps and raps. It started with my general... There was two things that happened. One was I actually was behind in reading and writing for a while. And around fifth grade was when I started to catch up. Like I did some summer, I like did summer school. I did some reading. Like my parents literally sent me to like reading camp so I could get better at reading. And as soon as I started to really harness language more, I instantly was like, you know, subconsciously as a 10 year old or 11 year old, whatever was like, okay, I have this new thing that I'm learning, this new tool this literal language, how can I use that creatively? And at the same time, that was when I was starting to really get into music. And around me, most of the music that I was hearing was hip hop. So as I was starting to write, 
I was writing creatively and it didn't just come out as stories or poetry, it just instantly kind of just came out as rap. And so before I knew it, I was writing rap songs and I, f- I formed a little rap group with, with my neighbor. One thing, <laughs> one thing led to another and, you know, uh, a friend of a friend knew about this guy, Isaac Meek, who had a recording studio in his mom's backyard that he built one time when she was out of town. <laughs> and then he ended up recording like so much of, of legendary Seattle music for, it's still going, you know, he's been doing it for decades. So he built a studio in his parents' house while they were out of town? Yeah, his, his mom. <laughs> That's crazy. <laughs> Most kids would be worried about partying or trying to have people over when his parents are out of town. He's like, you know what? I think I'm going to build a studio. Right. Now, so he, <laughs> he was a little bit older. So he was actually 10 years older than me. Oh, okay. So when I met him, I was 11 and he was 21. So he was still a kid by by all, you know. Yeah, yeah, for sure. 21 is... I still feel like a kid and I'm 25. Exactly. So, so but it's crazy to look back because he has always been my OG. You know, like he really kind of raised me in this game. And took me under his wing, and it's it's wild to look back and think about how mature he was, and just the the amount of time that he took to invest in this this preteen at when he was still just a twenty one year old. It, it really it blows my mind because here I am, thirty years old, and only now do I feel like I actually have the resources and the insight to pass on some sort of wisdom or experience to my to my younger you know peers he was so mature and developed as an engineer and producer and he really just put me through like boot camp as like an 11 year old so i spent all of middle school and high school outside outside of class i would just go to the recording studio and i would just sit in you know even if it wasn't my session i would just sit in the studio and just soak up game you know, something would happen. I, Isaac would turn to me and drop a little nugget of knowledge on me. Or if, if someone was writing a song, he would he would have me. He would say, "Saul, you have fifteen minutes. Write a verse. The song is about this. Write a verse." And when the session was over, the artist would go home, and then Isaac would let me record. You know, and the, oftentimes this was like school nights. I really started putting in my my ten thousand hours super early. Was he? consciously trying to simulate the pressure of the music industry down the line, but at a younger age, just to give you a taste of it? Oh, yeah. I mean, it was all set up so that I could have a career. It wasn't just, let's try to make good music. That is obviously the best business model. He, he was, he's, very, he's a very pragmatic guy. So he, he obviously cared about the art, but he, he really instilled this this idea of hard work, a mind for the business. He used to do these sessions that were not even recording sessions. We would just meet up at like a restaurant or he would rent out like a a conference room somewhere and invite all these artists to come on like a Sunday afternoon. And he would have somebody come in as like a guest speaker and do presentations about publishing or, um, how to market your music or all these different things. He was really trying to build this, this community. And to be honest, uh, over the years, I think he had some artists kind of screw him over or different things happened. And he, you know, he started, he had kids and 
he runs a studio now that still represents a huge part of Seattle music. And he has... Yeah, Undercast Studios, right? Mm -hmm. I remember speaking about that last time we talked a little bit. I just wanted to say the name, give a a shout out. Sure. And now he has a group of of, um, producers and uh, recording engineers who he's mentoring. And I think he's put a lot of his energy into that. Uh, and then those engineers are are now developing their own artists. So it's really grown. But uh, I I was a part of this this thing that he was building really early on that I can't even imagine myself even having the longevity or even the the smallest bit of hope in music without the practical approach that he gave me at such a young age. That's such an unbelievable, impressionable asset to have, like you were saying, at such a young age, whether it was in the studio or at one of these presentation sessions where you said he was going through publishing and other sides of the industry, what are some specific little nuggets of knowledge or maybe some learning moments that to this day you've stuck by or have gone back to consistently if maybe things are getting a little bit too hectic? Is there anything or any conversation with Isaac that sticks out where it's kind of like a grounding moment that you go back to that for clarity? One thing that I think has stuck with me that came to mind right away is not necessarily something that he invented, but something that he instilled in me. And it's once you learn the rules, there are no rules. And that was really important because for me, as a 12, 13-year-old, I had an idea of what I wanted to be I thought I did. I thought I knew what I wanted to sound like. And he would have me do these things that for me felt like a waste of time, but they were so that I could develop a foundation from an artistic and from a technical standpoint that then I can decide to go away from that. So, you know, he had me learning triplets, which is like a rhyme scheme. He'd have me rapping on double time beats, even though my aesthetic was boom bap, like more like traditional hip hop beats. He had me rapping on double time beats when only people like Twista and Tech Nine were doing it. And that made it so now in 2019, when everyone's rapping on trap beats, that's not some new thing that I need to learn how to do. You know what I'm saying? And so he instilled this idea where it's like, you should know how to do everything. You, you, should, you should learn the rules and the, and the technical aspect of this, you should be able to count your bars, even though many great artists don't count their bars, you should be able to. So and you understand that your verse should end in, in a measure of four, it should either be eight or 12 or 16 bars. But then when you understand that, yeah, if you, if you decide to finish after 15 bars and let the beat ride for a moment before the hook comes, that's a conscious decision. It's not because you didn't know how to finish your verse. When, when, when you learn the rules, then that's when you're able to get abstract. It's, for example, like someone like Basquiat or Van Gogh, they, they could do, they could paint something to be lifelike, but they choose not to. You know, stylistically, they were able to do something that was so minimal, it looked like a kid could do it, you know, especially Basquiat. But that was his aesthetic. That was a conscious choice. It wasn't because he, was, he didn't know how to, how to paint. Yeah, it sounds like he was having you build this foundation. And like you were saying at the time, as a younger kid, 
you might have thought, you know, why am I doing this or what's the reason I need to learn this? But down the road, I'm sure you appreciated a lot of the tools and the the foundations that he instilled in you. And even if it wasn't something that was necessarily in the lane that you were pursuing, it's cool to explore and necessary in a lot of ways to explore the the full realm of artistry, no matter what it is in any creative pursuit. Even if like, it's good to be able to do some other things, you know, like in uh, just for example, in podcasting, you might think that all of it is learning to have conversations or vocal, but a lot of what I do, 90% of podcasting is the research and writing what you're going to say or kind of writing out a plan or things to do and tools. And not that that's the same as having to write music at all because it's not, it's two completely different things. But the fact that you have to have all of these tools that don't necessarily come out when you're on stage, but just to know that they're there to have that foundation seems like it's really important in what you were doing. Yeah, man. So to go back a little bit, I know last time we spoke, we talked a little bit about your aunt who grew up in Haiti and she is a painter and her family didn't necessarily support her in the same way that your family supported you. And you can correct me at any point because the last time we spoke was a while ago, but these are just notes that I had from last time. And I remember that you said you had a very emotional, pivotal conversation with your aunt about art at one point, about what she's been through and moving to America. Yeah, that. Yeah, I was going to say, do you do you have, uh, or how did that change your view or how did that strengthen your view or passion for music at the time, even though she was painting and you were also painting when you were younger? How did that sort of strengthen your view, having that creative conversation with your aunt about following your, your passions? Yeah, that I think she and I had had just had that conversation like right before we spoke. So it was, you know, oh, wow. it was super it was super fresh in my mind where basically my aunt or my mom and her whole side of the family is from Haiti and uh she my mom moved to the United States for college. My her younger sister, my aunt moved to the United States and actually was in the military and got her citizenship that way. And at some point in her life, actually, after a, a marriage that didn't pan out, she her she had a husband pass away. You know, she was at this point in life where she was she was not a a, a young kid or, or even a, a teenager. I, I don't I don't know exactly how old she was, but she completely changed career paths and started to paint. And maybe she was already painting. Obviously, I wasn't around at the time, but she chose that she was gonna take this seriously and she was going to pursue this as a career and um my grandmother and, and a lot of the family didn't didn't get it you know and and obviously it's a very difficult challenging career path and there's a lot of things that are not guaranteed with that but uh she went for it and i i don't think that my grandma ever got it now my aunt is a, is an amazing painter and and you know her, she she's appreciated for her art that she doesn't make a living off of it, even though, of course, she would like to. But she has gone through a very difficult journey and still makes her art. And so for me, when I was I was having lunch with her, 
And she kind of really broke down for me how difficult it was for her to make that decision for herself, even though everybody kind of disapproved of it and she still went for it. It really gave me a lot of appreciation for my decision and my career path where even though my parents didn't understand hip hop on the level that I would have liked as a kid, they never stopped me. They never paid for my studio time. I always had to find a way to pay for studio time, had to find a way to get to the studio. But, you know, like I was saying, like I grew up in the studio. I spent more time in the studio than I spent, you know, playing Little League. They never stopped that, even on school nights and all of that. And so to have that level of access and then to be able to then, even though I graduated from college, instead of getting a normal job, I, I dove deeper into music. Nobody ever even really, you know, maybe people would question how likely it would be for me to make a living, but nobody ever really questioned or tried to stop me from going for it. And that came from a level of privilege where firstly, I am a generation, I'm first generation in that, you know, I was born here and my family is comfortable enough that firstly, I was able to go to college. And secondly, when I was 20, 21, if it, if it wasn't working, you know, I could have stayed at home. My, my aunt was, was living in the United States with, with our family back in Haiti and, you know, really much less, much less to fall back on. And so it gave me a lot of gratitude for, for kind of where I'm at and the fact that I'm even able to, to make music for a living is I feel connected and and um, standing almost standing on this, the shoulders of what my aunt kind of went through so that our whole family could kind of be further away from that stigma. Like my, my, my mom saw my aunt go through it. So in, in her own small way, she probably understood me more by having a sister who's an artist. Yeah. And that point about other kids spending time in Little League while you were in the studio growing up as a kid. When I was growing up, I was basically the reverse. I didn't really explore a lot of creative elements until later in college. And after I graduated, I've been out of school for about two, three years. For you, do you feel like you were lacking any sort of element of competition when you were a kid because you weren't competing in the same way most other kids were competing. And, and that's through the game of sports, whether it be baseball or soccer, football, or do you feel like you were able to harness that same level of competition, but just in a different way in the studio, maybe competing with other artists or even with yourself? Oh yeah. I, I the latter for sure. I think that there is, it would be hard to find something that's more competitive than the rap game. You know, I am extremely competitive with myself and I grew up in an environment the recording studio was a hotbed for competition. We are always trying to one up the, the next guy, lots of freestyle like sessions and ciphers and and now uh, both within my community in Seattle as well as the the greater hip hop community, I think even though battle culture isn't as big of a thing, I think that it's very competitive. 
of possibly to a fault, especially now that numbers are so transparent and, you know, people, things like social media lead people to kind of be number based and also kind of like it's a popularity type thing rather than necessarily a skill type thing. At least with a large number of people, there's, there's always going to be people who care about the art first. Yeah, no, I, I think it's beautiful, actually, the level of competition that there is within hip hop. I think it's what keeps the culture moving forward. Yeah, and the level of accessibility is crazy nowadays, too. You can upload something from across the world from another listener and they hear it, you know, 30 seconds later and you can accumulate, you can accumulate this following before you ever go on your first tour, which, you know, five, 10 years ago, you had to go on tours to accumulate a following and you can sell out a show now the first time you ever come through a place, which is crazy because you have kids and adults listening to you before they ever meet you or, or see you in person. For all those reasons, I think it's a good time to be an artist. Like there's more artists than ever. And there's so much stuff on the internet that of course you can get lost in the shuffle. But 10, 20 years ago, if you wanted to be heard by somebody outside of your, like outside of you selling them a CD physically, you would have to have some sort of external resource, some sort of distribution deal, marketing, PR. Now you can really just have word of mouth and it can be done entirely through the internet. Were you handing out CDs when you were younger, just making them and giving them out to people? Was that something that you were doing before you started uploading music to the internet? Because you're, you just turned 30, right? Yeah, I, I released... To answer your question, yes. And I think I, I had already released two projects. Uh, <laughs> I'm going to... I'm going to make myself sound older than I actually am, but I really don't care. I released two projects before iTunes was even a thing. So when I was in high school, I released, man, maybe I released three projects. In high school, I released two mixtapes purely physically, just selling them to people in my school and at fe- like local festivals and on, on the street. Like I was one of those guys with the headphone and the boombox, or not the boombox, like the, the Walkman, like trying to sell you a CD for five bucks, 10 bucks, whatever. And I did that even through my first couple projects that were on iTunes, because as a, as a starting artist, aka starving artist, that was the, that was the difference between like making $0 that day and sometimes making $150, $200 that day. You know, um, I could walk up and down a popular street for a couple hours and, and possibly sell 10, 15 CDs. So yeah, it, it was, it was, it was definitely a thing. Yeah. And you have such a unique perspective because you, like you said, you were releasing music before iTunes and, and streaming Spotify, SoundCloud, Apple Music, that was a thing. And that's not even that long ago. It just sounds that long ago because artists that are younger now, that's, that's all they've ever known. They, they don't know what it's like to have to physically hand out copies of their music that people are taking off of the shelves, shelves and having to drive somewhere to go get. Was there a point where you saw what was going on with streaming and Spotify and SoundCloud and kind of the culture changing where you thought to yourself like, shit, like this is going to be the next wave. This is going to be big I like 
just having that perspective of growing up in the physical world of music, which I did as well. I, I I'm not that much younger than you. I remember having, you know, like a Dell digital jukebox and ripping MP3s from LimeWire before streaming services were a thing. Was there a point where you saw the culture starting oh, to change and it hit you like this is going to be big, like this is going to be the new go-to platform or the style of platform? Yeah, I I actually wrote one of my two college I I wrote a college thesis specifically about that. So my senior, basically my senior paper was a 30 page research into how technology has changed the way that people consume music. So I obviously talked about where it, where it had already been, you know, whether it be like the early beginnings of how people even recorded music, radio, CDs, of course, and then talking about the what happened with the with the MP3 and like you said with LimeWire and with downloads and then honestly the response to that I think streaming only one of the huge reasons why streaming eventually became so accepted because it took a while actually when I wrote the paper Spotify existed but it was only in Europe and it hadn't came to the United States because the record labels basically were were blocking it and the reason why it was it was only a matter of time before streaming was the future was because that was the only viable response to illegal downloading. When you think about it, people are illegally downloading way less. It's down, I don't know the percentage, but it's almost nothing now because it's so easy to legally listen to something without having to buy it. And that's the key is that even though yeah, maybe most of these people are no longer buying the MP3 or the physical CD. They are at least streaming it in a way that the artist still gets something. It's not fair yet. That's not the listener's fault. That's the that's the rules and the splits that are set up by honestly the, the higher powers that be. You know, like we're getting fractions of a penny. You know, and and, and in order for it, in order for someone who bought your song once for 99 cents, in order for you to get that same amount of money in streams, that person in theory is going to have to stream it, I don't know, thousands of times, which is, you know, even the most listened to song usually back in the day on your iTunes would be like a few hundred or, you know, or whatever. So it's not, it's not equal yet, but we are getting something when those people are listening when before a lot of those people were illegally downloading and the artist was getting nothing. So I, I wrote a paper about that. And I think net, like Netflix at the time had started streaming and I was basically, gonna, I was basically saying, it's going to be like Netflix, but f- for music. And you're going to be able to access your playlist and you know the songs that you've added to your library. And any song that comes to your mind, you'll be able to just type it in and access it. That was kind of a novel thing. YouTube was around. But YouTube was still this thing that like only had a small percentage of the videos it has now. It was like YouTube was low key, like not that flooded yet. It was like, this is a thing where you're going to get every album that you can think of at the tip of your fingers. And, and you, can, you, you can go into your car, you have access to it. You go into your house, uh, on your TV, wherever you're logged in, you'll have access to that. And at the time, that was a pretty novel concept and honestly, a, a very luxury idea. Uh, I think we're in a very, 
even though it's information overload and people don't even know what to listen to now, it's a luxury that we can listen to music in so many different situations. It makes sense. And like you're saying, it's not right yet for the artists and it's not the listener's fault. It's the structure of how the people in charge are, are setting it up and how the industry has kind of acquired this technology. But it makes sense that there would be some type of trampoline effect where it may be at a low point in terms of artists making revenue when it's first starting out. We're still in the early stages, but then having some sort of bounce back effect where things are balancing out and people are realizing that, you know, it's kind of absurd that we're saying 500 or a thousand streams is equal to one download. Like that doesn't make sense. You shouldn't, the trade-off from downloading music to streaming is not on the same level yet or wavelength. It's not equal in terms of what the artist is making from an equivalent listen to their music. And there are other things going on too that I've just been learning about with different laws with the Music Modernization Act and how basically there eventually will be a one clearly defined, like a glossary or or a go-to index for songwriters and producers and artists and something that will allow them to get paid on the same structure where, you know, if you, if you write a song or you produce a song or you're A&R, like this, you're going to get this. There will be like a blockchain clear link and people won't be overlooked in the payment process like they are right now. So many people that are involved in a song don't get paid properly. And then there are at least steps being taken to right those wrongs. Yeah, the the like one good thing that Trump has done, and I don't even know if he's like aware of like what he was doing when he did it, but he finally signed that thing. When a lot of presidents have have had it on their table and didn't push it through, but um, yeah, I'm not gonna, I'm still not gonna give him any credit for that. Yeah, it's at least one thing he's done for artists in the music industry in general. So, flashback to University of Washington. You were awarded the Bonderman Scholarship, which for people that aren't familiar with that, it it allowed you or the school funded you to travel to 10 countries in about 10 months. But the one requirement was that you had to go at it alone. Is that correct? Yeah. So each year they award, it might, honestly, it might be more students now, but when I did it, it was seven grad students and seven honor students. And you have to apply, and it's it's very competitive. But but if you get it, if you're one of these students, they give you twenty thousand dollars to travel abroad for a minimum of eight months to a minimum of six countries. So I traveled for ten months to ten countries, and um, I went all around East Africa, South Africa, India, Brazil, Colombia, Trinidad, Jamaica, and then I went to Haiti for the first time, which is where my family is from. So to go back to a moment before you even left for that trip, so many people fantasize about traveling the world for that period of time, including myself. And I think a lot of people are getting those kind of like fantasies in their head or these pictures from Instagram and other forms of social media where people are constantly documenting what they're doing and people might have this romanticized view of travel, which is not the case most of the time. A lot of times there are these very uncomfortable moments that you have to deal with, especially 
when you're traveling alone. Before you even left, what was your mindset like? How did you get to the point where you decided, okay, I'm I'm going to accept this. I'm I'm going to do this. I'm going to travel alone for 10 months, whatever the journey brings me. I'm just going to commit to the journey. How did you get to that point where you finally just said, I'm doing this? It's a good question. Man, at the time, I don't know that I did get to that point. I think the only thing that I did was commit. Besides that, mentally, I I wouldn't say that I was necessarily ready or like at peace or that I had any type of (laughs) clarity. I I was really in a whirlwind in my personal life, you know, uh, right. Holding on to my, to my, to my relationship at the time with a single thread. My music career was going crazy. You know, I had just released my, my album, Yours Truly, which, you know, charted on Billboard. And this went, is back in 2012, you know, and, right? And, right, yeah. And it was just this crazy moment for me where everything was kind of telling me to stay, except for the fact that I had this tremendous opportunity to go. So I kind of just knew that it was this thing where if I didn't take that opportunity, then I might never do something quite like that. Like I might never really travel like that for like a year, going to all those types of places. Most of the people in my life aren't even down to go to those types of places. If they have free time and with their hard-earned money, they're going to go somewhere relaxing where they don't have to worry about anything. And for me, I was going, I was seeking out culture and life experience and human connection as far and as different as possible. And um I I just kind of went for it, and and it, it was amazing. But uh, to answer your question, I I don't know that I was necessarily mentally ready. In hindsight, things like meditation and therapy and journaling, and obviously writing music w- would help. And I did write a lot of music in that little bit of time before I left, and and while traveling, and especially when I got back. But yeah, I, I wouldn't say that I was necessarily ready, and I don't know that you can be. You kind of just got to get yourself on the plane. And then and then from that point, you're just along for the ride. That's crazy. Especially like you were saying, since your your music career was popping off with yours truly going into, to the top of the charts. And most people would do anything to build on that momentum or that's all they would see. It would It would kind of be tunnel vision with music, especially once you commit to making a living off of music or whatever it is, once you have that moment, most people would do anything they can to build upon that. And you left to go travel the world. And I'm interested in kind of behavioral changes like that or sudden changes in habits or, or motivations. And you mentioned journaling and, and meditation and other sorts of you know mindfulness therapies like that. Was that a a huge influencing factor in the decision before you left or and if that was were that was there anything else that helped you get to that point where you s- said I'm going to put music on hold at least in the United States at least the from the industry American industry standpoint because I know you did do a lot of exploring of yourself and other music from around the world what helped you or influenced you 
to get to that point where you were comfortable letting go of the successes you were seeing in America? Well, I honestly didn't get into meditation until after I got back. Journaling was a big thing for me while traveling, but uh, I didn't really dive into that until until then. But the only thing that I would say kind of prepped me for that or helped me kind of be at peace with that decision where I was going to press pause on the rap life pursuit was that I was doing something that was priceless and kind of a uh, just a bigger picture life decision, you know, and something that was going to give me something unique for myself and for my art that most people don't get to experience. And so even though a lot of people might sign, sign to a record label, a lot of people tour, a lot of artists release albums for me to make music that is truly mean, uh, meaningful, to have more life experience is super important to travel and to truly connect with, you know, when you're touring and truly connect with your audience and with the people that you meet. I think the type of experience that I have traveling abroad feeds that and it gives me a different outlook when it comes to touring and, and performing. And so my hope when I was leaving and fortunately the thing that I feel that I got when I, from that experience and that I carry with me still is this perspective, this life perspective that you could only get from an experience like that. And also my commitment, something that I always knew is that music is a life commitment for me. I hope to always create music. I might not be on stage rapping as a 60-year-old, but I'm always going to write music. I'm always going to stay close to music, and I'm always going to be an artist. And so to take 10 months away from this constant grind of this very self-centered kind of rap career to, to go have some meaningful life experience when I have many years left in my life, when I look at it that way, it's a no-brainer. Yeah, so the kind of like the longevity of the vision took the pressure off in the moment to allow yourself to have that experience, which I'm sure if you were consumed with the other short-term rewards or pleasures of the music industry, it would have been much, much harder. You may not even wanted to step away. Having that long-term mindset and committing to a vision, I'm sure like you were saying, played a, played a huge part and allowed you to kind of relax and say, okay, like I'm going to dedicate my life to this. I'm going to put this on hold for a second. This is going to recharge me or refuel me for my creative pursuits when I get back. But right now I'm, I'm going to do this. Yeah. So while you're traveling, you went to 10 countries about a year, having all of these crazy moments, uncomfortable, joyous, situations, putting your trust in strangers, doing things that are out of the ordinary. If a hundred-year-old soul had his grandchildren gathered around the, the fire for a story all of these years from now, what particular moment or situation do you think that he would be talking about from that journey? <laughs> Wow, I don't know, man. There's so many. Let, let me. Yeah, and it's so hard to choose. I'm sure there are hundreds of things that pop into your head, but even if it's just the first one or one that sticks out, maybe a little bit more than the others. You know, one thing that I often find myself thinking about 
is my experience, firstly, while in Africa, but especially while in Ethiopia, and really just sharing the beauty and wonder of that place and encouraging whoever I was telling the story or, you know, like in this case, my grandchildren to find a way to go there. Because in the same way that there are holy lands like Jerusalem, Ethiopia is is a holy land, firstly, for Christianity, also for Islam. There's places, you know, there's cities in Ethiopia that are considered some of the most holy for Islam, but also for, for the human race. That's likely where the first man and woman come from. You know, it's where they found some of the oldest, if not the oldest, human remains. And it is also one of the most beautiful and welcoming places that I've ever been. The food is amazing. The people are beautiful. And I think it's such an important example of human endurance, especially considering that it's where we all come from. and. People have a really rough time there, but people continue to be so loving and welcoming. I think as, a, as an outsider, to be welcomed like that by somebody who has so much less than you, I think it's really humbling. And it, it made me go back to my life here in Seattle and my, my career in music and, and kind of carry that with me in, in the way that I treat people. And I, I'll always feel close to that part of the world because of that experience. If you were going to make a soul solo guide to travel and you had to include maybe three, four bullet points, overarching guidelines or, or lessons to traveling, what do you think you would include there for someone who is going to go on a similar experience, travel the world? by themselves for an extended period of time? What do you think they should know or be prepared for? Or what would you, I guess a better way to put it would be, what would you have wanted to know before you left that would have been helpful? (laughs) I mean, most of it's pretty practical because so much of what people experience are going to be their own experience. And the places that they choose to go, they're going for their own reason. But yeah, I guess that would be the first thing is to travel with a certain sense of purpose, but also a certain sense of, of openness. And, and in that, I mean, you should have an idea of what feeds you and what you're looking for as far as experience goes. So for me, music is a huge guiding light. Music influenced the, the types of places I went, even subconsciously. And socially, there would be, you know, I would have a conversation with a stranger And it would end up oftentimes the thing that we would end up connecting and really kind of getting excited uh, excited about would be talking about, you know, some of our passions with music. And so when you have that part of yourself that you are open about and that you are also excited about or something that you're interested in, that is going to end up leading you on your journey. And it's going to open so many doors if you, if you lead with that. So for example, for you, if you're really into storytelling or you also like the idea of oral history and talking to people, you know, you, you could, what, one of the things that you could travel with would be a little voice recorder or something like that. And, and let that be, let your recording of live sound and, you know, different uh, ambient sounds or 
you know, talking to people and, and, and asking if you could record and, and interview them, that could lead you into some situation where you might be recording some legendary musician or some mother of, who's never left the, her village, but has all this, all these stories to tell, or, you know, it would just lead you into so many things. If you kind of have this thing that, that you can bring into your, the situation and kind of like open up a conversation or break the ice. So for me, it was music. So I think if, if people can think of what that is for them and lead and let that help, help them influence the places that they want to go, the types of things that they look for, I think it'll give them a lot more purpose, especially when you're going to places that you don't know anything about or when you might feel like, oh man, I'm just traveling. Like I don't have an agenda. At least you have this kind of this hook that, that kind of brings it all together. The other stuff would be like, don't travel with anything that you can't stand to lose. You know, just simple stuff like that. Like, cause you might lose, you might lose everything. And, and the good news is most things you can buy. Like, even if you, let's say somehow your, your bag got stolen from the bus that you were on or something like you, you could buy a new bag, you can buy new shoes and stuff like that. And with that in mind, yeah, you should always have money stashed and maybe an extra debit card stashed somewhere separate. From where the rest keep that cash money on you yeah or you know just having a photocopy of your passport simple stuff like that because you should prepare for the worst and i would say the the other kind of last thing that i would say is to one thing that i had although it led me to a lot of situations most people wouldn't be down for uh i really tried to say yes to everything i was like i was like that jim carrey movie i was like a yes man yeah yes man. yes to everything unless it really fundamentally went against my core values or morals, not even just values, but like my morals or who was going to put me in like grave danger. But even that, I like, I pushed that one a little bit, you know, like I, I definitely said yes, or like followed situations sometimes that were maybe too risky, but, but it was worth it because I was, pursuing something that was either going to be like really amazing or I, I just didn't want to be guided by, by fear. You were saying yes to all of these things as long as, as long as it didn't cross that threshold of your values or your survival danger threshold, which I'm sure yeah, so, is, is higher outside of America because different people have different perceptions of what's dangerous or not. Yeah. And then when you've been traveling for a while, for example, like I was in, I was in India, like I would, I rented a, like a motorbike, basically, you know, like a, a Vespa or a, a, it wasn't the model Vespa, but I had a scooter and I was whipping around Chennai, which is the third biggest city in India. I was whipping around downtown Chennai on a scooter going from place to place. And it's like, yo, I, honestly, I don't even do that in Seattle. But for some reason, because I've been traveling and, and I'm out there, my standards change, you know? Yeah. But, uh, it's like your guard's mostly, down. Yeah. Mostly saying yes to me meant it was as simple as like, okay, I'm hella tired, but this person just invited me to this free hip hop concert in, in Salvador, Brazil. And, you know, like, yeah, I could go back to the place I'm staying and pass out, or I could stay up another four or five hours and meet all these people I wouldn't have met, watch this, this live music. And, and in that, in that particular case, I, I ended up meeting this amazing hip hop artist in Brazil who took me in 
and I was recording. He had me perform with him at Carnival. I performed for hundreds of thousands of people. That's not what it was about. But because I said yes to that situation, it put me in a whole line. It like changed my whole future. When I, if I had said no, I would just went to bed and, and I wouldn't even remember that night. Yeah, I guess challenging yourself to face that uncomfortability just opens up a, a whole another realm of experiences. And as soon as you said, bring a voice recorder and, and just you talking about all these conversations now in my head, I have popping up, you know, this, this picture of me traveling with a recorder and just talking to people and having conversations with people that I meet, like you were saying, you know, maybe it's some legendary musician in Ethiopia or talking with someone in India and just kind of Recording these conversations and not releasing them while I'm traveling so you don't have to worry about posting them and like the social media aspect of pushing the conversations, but just kind of like saving them up. And then once you get back, once I get back to America, just dropping them in albums or something based on experiences or lessons or values or whatever. That that seems like a very cool idea. So I'm going to jump around a little bit. At the end of 2017, you opened up for Macklemore at the Key Arena, which is a stadium in Seattle. And he had other rappers, hometown rappers, and he brought them out for the two shows that he played. But you go back with Macklemore for a while. And I remember last time we spoke, you, you talked about recording with him as a teenager. How did that relationship start to develop? To be honest, it was it was no different than my my relationship with any of my Seattle peers. There's there's a that generation that I came up in, whether it be Macklemore, the Blue Scholars, or Grinch, or the Physics. It was an era, for, for lack of a better term, where we were all just trying to figure it out. At, at the time, the the most amount of success that someone had was maybe selling out a three hundred or five hundred person local venue and getting to open up for some touring national act as they came through town. And yeah, we we're just trying to figure it out. I remember passing out flyers with, with Mac at UW when I was a student, he came and met, met me in my dorm room and gave me a stack of flyers and we ended up playing this all ages venue downtown Seattle and maybe having 150 people there. And so, yeah, it's not really any different than a lot of my, my peers from that time. The only difference is, he was somebody who really took everything that he learned and very strategically applied it to his career. I mean, I've never seen somebody work so hard or really kind of with so much clarity about their DIY marketing and just the way that he continued to, to level up his career. So for me, having been around since the the beginning of that and just having a first row seat, the least or the most that I can hope to do is just to learn from him the way that he was learning from the people who came before him or, or, you know, I mean, I, yeah, it's just a super smart dude. So throughout the years, he's almost been like a, a mentor, like somebody who I just learned from simply by watching. And so it's been a privilege to just kind of have a front row seat for that. A lot of people say in order for 
you to reach that level of success. It's not necessarily being good at a lot of things, but it's just kind of going all in or maximizing one or two skills that can kind of push you towards that next threshold and breakthrough. From your perspective, what do you think that Macklemore was able to hone in on that skill that maybe not other people were paying attention to or, or maybe weren't as good at that allowed him to kind of break through that glass wall? He is and was good at more than just a couple of things, but to for the sake of that theory, which there is something too, I definitely feel it. One of the things that I think he really harnessed that a lot of people haven't or didn't think to is the focus on, on the live performance. He puts so much effort into everything from the, the song transitions to the experience that his fans have when they come in the venue and, and how, uh, on point your, your merchandise is and how his live show is like theater. And I mean that in the best way. And that was true even when he was playing, you know, a 500 person room or now when he pays and he plays, you know, for 20,000 people. And he, he's somebody who I always saw invest in his live show and really kind of just level it up. So even when he wasn't quite there yet, he wasn't quite as big as the next man he put on a show that was bigger than the next man and kind of left you at a point where even if you didn't know his music or you thought you didn't like it, you could not deny the show. So the live show and touring is something that I just saw them really, really, really hone in on. And the other thing that I think that those guys did and do really well is their team building. I think that they're, they recognize people's potential and people's talent and that they really make those people those people feel involved and they build and they build the community around their music. So even though he is a solo artist, he has this whole team, whether it be the, the, the video directors or, or the people in the band, you know, it really does take a village. And, you know, as someone who did not sign to a major record label, he basically built his own label and had this whole team that just was all pushing the same vision. Cause like, that's the only way that you're going to get people to pull these all-nighters. Like you can't necessarily pay someone, especially when they were starting out, you know, and, and they didn't have all the money yet to be able to get the same level, like that level of work out of people before the, the return even comes. You have to really get people to buy in. And so I, I really, I really saw that firsthand and, and uh, I think that, that they did a really good job of that. For you, when people see you on stage, fans that come to shows, they're only seeing a small slice of what actually goes on in a music artist's life. They see you on stage and then you disappear. Well, not really. Nowadays with social media, people can see a lot more than they used to, but they see you on stage. And that is the only part of your life most of the time that people get to see in person and from the outside there can be this perspective that things are always smooth sailing and everything's a home run and you're constantly winning all the time and you know they must they're playing in front of 500,000 10,000 people you know everything must be going well if you're comfortable talking about it are there any anti home run moments or just like these moments where you put Every not everything, but you you put a lot of effort to or put a lot of things on the line that just didn't work out. 
and not that you didn't learn anything from it, but in that moment, you thought this was really going to work. And for whatever reason, whatever situation, it just ended up not panning out as you pictured. Yeah, I mean, I, I've had videos or songs that I thought were going to be the one. And, you know, I had videos where I put almost all, almost all my money into a music video and then have it do no better than a video where I spent no money, you know? I think those types of those types of moments have taught me that you can't you don't really know you can't control how people are going to receive stuff. The only thing you can control is your your effort and also that it's really mostly about the intent and the message behind something and the feeling and it's not necessarily about how much money you put into it or how clean it looks. It's really just, does it have that essence? Does it have that X factor? Sometimes you don't really know because you'll love a song for one reason, but someone else loves it or doesn't love it for a different reason. And so I've tried to not act like I know exactly what people are going to think about my art. And so for that reason, I try to just create as much as possible and just try to improve and yeah, maybe not. And also in those moments where maybe something doesn't meet your your hope for, for what it will uh, achieve to not be so hard in yourself and to know that, you know, there's always the next thing. And it really is about the narrative, you know, and, um, and it's, it's a marathon and it's also, you know, these, especially when it comes to music, these songs and these projects are like messages in a bottle and you just send them out. And it's all about, it's better to send more messages. If you're stranded on the Island, you're sending these messages, trying to get contact with somebody. You don't send out just one big message and hope someone finds it. You got to send out as many as you can. The more messages you send out, the more likely and the more messages in general are, are going to come back to you. And so, yeah, it's a learning process. I think that's what the whole, the whole new album is about. You know, Soon Enough is about that journey and also that growth. Yeah. And you've been developing this perspective and learning process for you know two decades now you started making music around when you were 10 years old how has that process evolved get as you were getting closer to finalizing the upcoming album soon enough what was that inspiration or process like knowing all the things you know now being in your late twenties, making it thirty years old, the first release you have at in your thirties, and a lot of people, you know, when you get older, I've even started to experience some of it myself, where you you don't pay attention to the same things you used to. A lot of things that you used to care about that were distractions kind of drop off, and and your attentions are aligned in some sense, hopefully, in things that truly matter if you're going in in the right direction. And I've definitely felt some of that for you as you're starting to weed out the things in your life that really matter and what you really care about. What was that inspiration or or process like as you get ready to release soon enough? For me, it's been focusing on listening, listening to myself, listening to my experiences, the, the lessons that have been handed to me and learning and growing from that. So for me, musically, that meant 
critically looking at any types of patterns that I have fallen into as an artist and pushing myself to evolve more. So I'm seeing, I'm singing more on this project. I think that my songwriting is better because of this. And from a business standpoint, I think that a lot of my ego has been stripped away. I, I know that I need help. I, I like, I think my team is stronger for that because I'm not as much of a micromanager now. I, I think that I've, I've really embraced the idea of coming up and growing with the people that I love and, and all the people who work with me and who have worked with me throughout all these years. We're, we're really on this ride together. You know, things don't happen overnight, but we've had so many victories along the way and so many small victories are to come even in the near future with this new project coming out with the big new Seattle show. I think that I'm making better videos and better music than I've ever made. And all of those things are, are victories. And so soon enough to me symbolizes that where it's like, okay, we aren't exactly where we want to be, but that's a moving target anyways. So I want to have more tangible idea of success and think of it as feeling purposeful, feeling growth, feeling like I'm part of a community, feeling like I'm making a difference. And um, in that, there is a sense of urgency in um, making sure that I'm being proactive, but also being at peace with the process and knowing that this, I'm not going to get where I'm going tomorrow. I'm not going to get there the next day, but I'm heading that direction. You honestly keep going until you can't anymore. And it's not really about reaching, reaching some sort of pinnacle or some idea of success. Because when you get there, then where, where do you go? And, and I never want to plateau. As we start to wrap up, I have a few questions that may draw on music. You can draw on personal experience. It doesn't necessarily have to come from either or. It could be a combination. So was there any time in your life where everyone was saying yes to a certain path or a decision? Everyone around you, seen, like it seemed like, you know, everyone else is doing this. I need to do this in order to see some sort of success or get to the next level that you said no to or a time where you were tempted to say yes and you said no to a certain opportunity and it made all of the difference looking back on it. We talked about it earlier, but I, I would say that my example is when I chose to travel on that fellowship, when I chose to travel abroad, that was definitely a moment where I zagged when everyone was zigging. And I chose an un, unconventional path. And I think that my life has been altered for it since that moment. And um, I had the best time of my life. I also have came back and had longevity in music and have, I tour and keep making music. But it definitely changed and shifted my, my career. And that was definitely my, my moment where I said, Yes, when everyone else said no, or I said no when everyone else was saying yes, but I definitely, I definitely went a different direction. Yeah, everything, everything we talked about definitely applies pretty perfectly to that question. What belief, behavior, or habit that you've adopted in the past three to five years has dramatically improved your life? Meditation. Meditation. How so? Just teaching me to be mindful, present. I think that. We live in a society in a time where there's an information overload. People are very 
self-centered, but at the same time, I don't think that we've been, we've ever been so out of touch with ourselves. So meditation for me has brought me to know myself at a greater level, but then also to be open and present enough so that I can have higher levels of empathy so that I can truly be there for the people in my life so I can feel for the people around me, even people that I might have disagreements with. I think that meditation has just opened me up and made, made me a better person and an artist for that. Do you have any advice for someone who's thinking about meditating or maybe has meditated in the past but had a rough experience or has let it go? Is, is there any... What would you say to someone that is thinking about meditation or hasn't necessarily had a, a great experience or any any tips or, or ways that you meditate that may be helpful, may, like walking or, or sitting down, posture, things like that could be anything. Uh, you know, the, the apps can be super helpful because they're so accessible, but they're also definitely not for everyone. And for me, my intro to meditation was actually group meditation, which you can find just by Googling like in your local area, trying to find a place where someone might have a guided meditation that you can go be with other people. It's, it's, it might sound strange, but it's actually super helpful to be with other people who are on the same vibe, literally. And um, having somebody present in the room actually walking you through it instead of just using YouTube or, or an app. So your introduction was like a group guided meditation. Someone was actively talking to you while you were while this group of people was participating. Yeah, there's an art there's an art museum close to my neighborhood that I would go to with, with my aunt, the same aunt that's a painter. If you could reach any everyone in the world through some type of broadcast, like if you people were listening to music and you all of a sudden your voice appeared in their headphones or they were watching a video and you popped up on the screen, if you could reach everyone right now through some type of broadcast, what message or or could be one simple as one word, what would you say if you ever had that short five second opportunity? And that's that's tough put to put to put you on the spot. I I don't even know what I would say. I feel like every time I ask this question, my answer changes depending on something I just read or listened to or what I'm feeling like in the moment. So that's tough to be put on the spot. But right now, just say if you if you were going if this podcast was reaching everyone in the world, what what do you think you would want people to know? Uh, I would say I would probably tell people to read. I mean, if people were like really going to listen to me, I guess, then I would say like to read more or basically to focus on I don't know knowledge. Knowledge is the key, I guess. Just like you know, I feel like knowledge is a form like if you're ignorant to some something aka you you don't if you're racist or you don't understand or know about another part of the world which makes you not care about it that is what leads to hatred and all, all that is wrong i think that ignorance is the greatest issue of the world so knowledge of others knowledge of self knowledge of history you know all of those things lead to a better and more healthy world so i would say knowledge is the key well said. I want to thank you for taking the time to sit down and, and have this discussion. I really do appreciate it. 
And uh, even with the uh, the headphone blip at the beginning with Zencaster, this is the third or fourth time I'm using this platform. The audio does sound really good on my end. And so I, just just so you know that it's going to sound good for other people that are hearing it to put you at a peace of mind. Yeah, no, man. But yeah, it's cool. I've I've never used Zencaster. It's definitely dope. And uh, yeah, I've, I haven't really had time or a direction into like what I would ever want to do, but I've always thought about podcasting. And so it's kind of cool to see that there's something as simple as this. Yeah, it's simple. It doesn't take a huge investment to start. If you have a, a few hundred bucks lying around, it's, it's very accessible to buy a, a recorder and a, a mic and you can kind of plug in. And with Zencaster, you can talk to people all over the world, which is great. It's basically like Skype audio, but it's built specifically for remote podcasting. And it, it, it makes it easy to get in touch with people, but just, just podcasting in general. I never envisioned myself wanting to do podcasts. And for most of my life, I didn't even know it was a thing. But yeah, it's been pretty cool. And I feel really grateful to be able to have conversations like this. It's definitely, in, I don't want to say eye-opening, but ear-opening because a lot of times I can't see <laughs> who I'm, <laughs> I'm uh, talking to. It's a very ear-opening experience. That's the world we live in. Things are ear-opening now with podcasts. <laughs> Thank you truly for listening to this conversation with Soul. The best way that you can help us grow as a platform is to tell your friends about us and subscribe, comment, and rate us in the iTunes store. This moves us miles ahead in searches, which in turn means that we can do bigger and better things to bring the conversation to you. So grab your phone, your friend's phone, the stranger's phone sitting next to you on the subway, and slam that subscribe button. Just as a reminder, we accept no responsibility in any physical altercations with said stranger, but we do appreciate your efforts. And please, please go listen to Soon Enough by Soul. The links to Spotify and Apple Music will be in the description of this podcast, or you can just search Soon Enough. That's all for this week. We'll be back soon enough. Until next time. Don't call, yeah, and you think about me, don't worry, I'm good, yeah, still care about you, never call, but you could, either way I'll be good, either way I'll be good, if you don't call, when you think about me, don't worry, I'm good, either way I'll be good, either way I'll be good, if you don't call, either way I'll be good. Either way, I'll be good When we kicked it every day We were something like One and the same Two sides of the brain Now we don't talk We went opposite ways What happened, I couldn't honestly say Just part of living life, I guess People move on Everything ends Like it's a song Can't repeat it Even your jam You knew it by heart Even your friends They treat like your fam Like the son of your mom Love some women like my sisters, how they cutting me off I got exes I could text whenever something was wrong Now they married out in Texas and they husband got a gun So we don't talk If you don't call, if you don't call Yeah, 
and you think about me, don't worry, I'm good. Yeah, still care about you, never call, but you could. Either way, I'll be good. Either way, I'll be good. If you don't call, either way, I'll be good. Either way, I'll be good. Don't worry, I'm good. old friends, new friends, school friends, two cool friends, that one girlfriend. You know, at one point meant the world, friend. Lost touch, but you're always my fan. Now we don't even wave when I see you round the way. We just both look away. Used to call me every day, but over time people change. And timing is everything. I don't blame you. I don't wanna hate you after everything we've been through. I just wanna thank you for being who you are. Even though we grew apart, without you I wouldn't make it this far. Now I'm in my zone, no new friends. In the way I'm working, I'ma lose my old friends. On my phone, on red text and full inbox. But that ain't the only reason we don't talk. If you don't call, yeah. And you think about me, don't worry, I'm good. Yeah, still care about you, never call, but you could. Either way, I'll be good. Either way, I'll be good. If you don't call, either way, I'll be good. Either way, I'll be good. Don't worry, I'm good. If you don't call.